In the following sermon, recorded on Sunday morning, the 7th of January, 1962, in the Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the Book of Acts, chapter 9 and verse 31. We would like to apologise, however, for the very poor quality during the first few minutes. This is due to the original master tape having stretched. A most interesting and lyrical description of the state and the condition of the early church at that particular point in her history. It's an account, of course, of the state of the church as a whole. There are those, and I think rightly, who say that this should be in the singular and not in the plural, then of the church rest and was edified. However, it comes to the same thing in the end. The point I was making was that this is true not only of the condition of the church as a whole at that point, but was obviously the condition of the individual members of the church also. There is no more fatal mistake than to regard the church as something apart from the individuals who compose her and who make her up. So when we are told that this was true of the church, it means that it was true in general of the members of the Christian church at that point. Now, the immediate uh, occasion is interesting in and of itself. There had been a terrible persecution of the early church, led very largely by Saul of Tarsus, afterwards the Apostle Paul. But in the early part of this chapter, we are told of how that mighty man was converted on his way to Damascus, where, of course, he was intent upon yet fiercer and severer persecution of the church. However, his conversion made a very great difference. And the result was that the churches had this period of rest. And what we are told in this verse is how they reacted to their changed circumstances and how they made use of this respite that was given them, this period of quiet which was granted them of God in his mercy. Now, I call your attention to this because here it seems to me we are given an account of the ideal state of the Christian church. This is how she should be. This is therefore what we should all, always be as individual Christians. And what can we do better on the first Sunday morning like this of a new year than just to remind ourselves of the ideal? Let's have a look at what the church was meant to be like in order that we may test ourselves by the description and see how we've done in the past, and in order that we may have a standard and a norm to which we must try to attain during the months and the years that lie ahead of us, God willing, as members of the Christian church. Now, you notice that there are two things which are told us here about the state of the church at that point. And I'm emphasizing that these are ever to be the two characteristics of the church. They're ever to be the two characteristics of every individual member of the church. And the two things are these. That she was being edified. And the second thing is that she was multiplied. Then that the churches rest throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Now, these are the two things that we must hold most clearly in the forefront of our minds. The multiplying means, of course, that there were additions to the church. 
that others became members of the Christian church and joined the Christian church. And here are the two big things, therefore, which should always characterize the life of the church when she is truly functioning as she ought. And these are the two things, surely, at this present time that we ought to be concerned about above everything else. Now you notice what they are. The first is our own state and condition. Our being edified. That's the thing that we find here first. And then following that, our usefulness. The way in which because we are in this state of edification that God can use us and imply us with the result that others likewise become Christians and are added to the church and so the church increases and multiplies in number. Now, here, therefore, is the thing I say that we must uh, lay hold of as firmly as we can this morning. May the Spirit of God enable us to do so one by one. Surely such an exhortation was never more needed than it is at this present time. We must be concerned, I say, about these things for this reason. That first and foremost, the credit and the honor of the Lord God himself is involved in this matter. I mean by that, that the, church, that the world, of course, always judges the church. And the world, through the church, judges God. We make a unique claim. We are not just a human society. The world is full of such societies and associations. And everybody knows that they're man-made. Men have thought of them. Men have organized them and planned them. And men are therefore responsible for them. But we make a, a claim which is quite different. We say this is not a human institution. We say we are God's people. We say that the church is his new creation by water and the blood. We say the church is a supernatural society. Here is a body that God himself has made. The church of God. Very well. Now then, it follows from that, of course, that the name of God is involved in everything that is true of us. And we cannot blame the world for judging God and the Lord Jesus Christ by what it sees in us. And therefore, whether we are edified or not is not merely and not only a matter for ourselves and our own happiness and enjoyment of the Christian life. It has this further application that God himself is being judged, and there's no question about that at this present hour. The Christian church is being judged, and people are denying the Christian truth and making their statements about the almighty God. They say, look at the church, look at her. That's the argument, and it's a very powerful argument. Well, very well, I say, we should realize this, and we should realize that it is our business to be edified because... Uh, the honor and the glory of God are involved in this whole matter. And of course it's involved not only in the matter that we should be good representatives of Christianity, that to use the phrase of the Apostle Peter in his first epistle, the second chapter and the ninth verse, he says that uh, we should show forth his praises, who hath called us out of darkness into his most marvelous light. That's what God is doing through us. He's showing forth his own excellences. He's showing his own power. 
his own grace, his own love. It is through us that God does that. Well, then, uh, it involves this not only that uh, by being what we are, we show his excellencies, but uh, in the same way, the increase of his kingdom should be a matter of grave concern to us. Because if the church of God goes down instead of going up, well, again, the world draws its conclusion. It's wrong, of course, but we can't expect anything better from it. And therefore, everything that happens to the church involves directly and immediately the honor and the glory of God. Now, if we had no other reason for taking these two words and applying them unto ourselves, we've had more than enough there. Are we manifesting this edification? Are we proving that the claims we make for the Christian gospel are true by our growth and development? And are we, as the result of this, leading to an extension and a multiplication and an increase of the number of Christian people in the world? Now take that second one again. And there's our second great reason for being concerned about these things. The state of the world that is outside the church. Now, these early Christians uh, were very concerned about that. And that is why wherever they went, they went speaking and preaching this word of God, we are told. And they did so because they had a great heart of compassion for the men and women who were around about them. They themselves had been delivered. They'd received this enlightenment. They were enjoying these blessings of the Christian life. And naturally, they desired that these others might know something about them. And therefore, they were used in this way to the multiplication of the church, to the enlightenment of these people, and to their conversion and their final addition to the Christian church. Now, was there ever a time, I wonder, when we as Christian people should feel the power of this argument more than we should at the present time? Look at the state of the world. Look at its darkness, its hopelessness, its utter confusion, and yet its appalling sinfulness. It is, as the New Testament describes it, in utter darkness, under the dominion of Satan. Do we feel a sense of compassion for the people? Our Lord did. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He came from heaven because of that. He died because of that. To what extent are we feeling this same compassion? He says he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, and it's a terrible state of the church when she just spends her time in condemning the world. The world doesn't need condemnation. It's already under it. The world needs to be delivered. It needs to be saved. So the business of the church is not just, I say, to condemn what the world is doing. It is so to represent the glories of this new life that men and women shall be drawn to it and attracted by it. And as we look round the world, therefore, and see men and women in utter hopelessness, who knows what's coming to meet us? Who knows what may happen during this coming year? And here are people who are not ready for it. They don't know how to live. They know still less how to die. They have nothing to fall back upon. Well, there they are. We are surrounded by such people in a state of darkness and ignorance and sin and utter and final hopelessness. And it should be our chiefest concern next to our own relationship to our blessed Lord and God 
that we should be used of him to bring this enlightenment and this knowledge to the people. Well, now, that is what happened, you see, at this point in the, this state of the early church. The church was edified, and the result was that uh, they were multiplied. Now, I mustn't stop with this this morning, but I do commend to you to notice the order of these two things. The thing that is put first is the edification of the church herself, and the result of that is that she was multiplied, she was increased. Here is an inevitable order. You'll find it in the Bible everywhere. You will find it in the long history of the Christian church, in all the periods of her greatness and of her authority and her power. This is God's way of working. He starts always in the church. And when the church is edified, the church is used. Now, the whole danger today is, of course, to forget that. And all the emphasis is put upon evangelism. And nothing much seems to happen. In spite of all the efforts, the statistics alone prove that the Christian church is going down instead of being multiplied. When will we come back and understand this? God starts in his own people. You and I are the evangelists. We are God's agents. It is through us God's going to do his work. And when the church is edified, she's multiplied. The order here is surely all important. And the greatest need of the hour is the edification of the Christian church. We must start with ourselves, my friends, and we should feel an awful sense of condemnation that the Christian church is as she is today. Now, let me put it to you like this. Why is it that we are failing to attract the masses that are outside? That's the question. Why is it that our lives are not such that men and women should come to us and say, now tell me what's your secret? How do you live as you do? What is the, the secret of this extraordinary way in which you're able to live and to face life and its attendant circumstances? Now, that's how these people acted. They were edified, and the result is that people came to them, and the churches were thus multiplied. This is the inevitable order. It is the order in the Scripture, and as I say, it has always been the order in the subsequent history of the Christian church. Well, now then, what remains for us to consider is this. How can we become like this? How can we get into this state and condition in which... It can be said of us, they were edified and they were multiplied. Now, this is true of the church in general, it's true of this church in particular, but it is true, I say, of every single one of us as a Christian. How many people have become Christians because you are what you are? How often have you been used to bring somebody to a knowledge of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, that's how these people were used. These were not all preachers. In fact, there were very few preachers amongst them. These were just ordinary Christian people. But as the result of their being what they were, people were added to the Christian church. How can we become such? Well, let's look at the answer that is given in this one verse. I'm not going to go outside it. Let me just expound what the verse tells us. The first thing is this. We've got to make a right use of peace. Then let the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Here's the first thing. They made a right use of the rest and the peace that were granted to them. As I've reminded you, this came after a period of most terrible persecution. But suddenly the persecution ended. 
And here they find themselves in a position of arrest. And what happened to them? The edification and the multiplication are the result of the way in which they reacted to and made use of this rest and this peace that were given to them. Now, I wonder whether this has struck you as being something strange and extraordinary. Because I think it should. This should come to us uh, more or less as a surprise and for this reason. That the general impression we always have is that the church is at her best when she's persecuted. And isn't it true to say of most of us that we are better people when we're undergoing some trial or affliction than when everything's going well with us? Now that is what is normally said and what is normally thought. That when a man's ill, he's a better man than when he's well. When the church is on trial and being viciously persecuted, she's purified. Now, you read the history of the church and you'll find that that has been the case on many, many occasions. And there are many who have to say, therefore, with the psalmist, it is good for me that I've been afflicted, because before I was afflicted, I went astray. But here, you see, we are told the exact opposite. Then that the church is rest, and we're ready for it. Now, how do we deal with this? How do we explain this? Well, unfortunately, the answer is but too simple. This is the right way. And what has been true of all of us and true of the church in general so often is the wrong way. You see, it is because we fail to respond to the gospel and its message that it becomes necessary that we should be chastised. But here the early church was in a healthy condition. And so when they were given a period of rest and of peace, they used it. And they were edified and multiplied because they'd got peace. It's a very convicting thought, this. You see, it means this, that we are so sinful that we fail to respond to the overtures of God and his love. And he has to chastise us in order to bring us to himself and in order to deal with us and promote our sanctification. Is there anything more terrible than that we as God's people should have to be driven to God? That it is necessary that we should be persecuted before we value the things we've got? You can read of people even today, Christian people meeting together at hazard of their lives. They may be shot, they may be killed just because they're assembling together. But they do it. They seem to value these things because of the persecution. And they'll risk everything in order to get together to worship God and to praise him, whatever the cost may be. That's happening in the world today. It's happened throughout the history of the church. Times of persecution, men have risked life and limb in order that they might thus praise God together. But alas, when there are times of ease and of peace and an absence of trouble, well... We take it for granted. We can do it again. Oh, no, it's all right. Plenty of time. We become slack and we become indolent. And uh, we make no effort at all. Now, unfortunately, that is the truth, isn't it? But that's a measure of the sinfulness and of the failure of the church. Here is the healthy condition. Here's the normal condition. You see, they're the exact opposite of what has been true of all of us and is so true of the church. 
Here are people who said at last, thank God the persecution has finished. Now then, we've got an opportunity. Let's make full use of it. And they did. They were given rest. So they applied themselves. And the result was they were edified and they multiplied. In other words, instead of saying, ah, oh, well, the persecution's gone, gone, we can now relax, we can take our ease, we can have a slack time, everything's all right. Instead of that, they said, what a heaven-sent opportunity we've got. Now then, there's no longer any danger. We shall no longer be molested. Very well then, let's meet as often as we can. Let's do everything we can in order that we may be built up and God may use us in order to add to the increase of the church. Now, this is something surely that should come to us all at a time like this with great urgency. Thank God we are still enjoying a kind of peace in this country and in the world. Thank God there is no militant persecution of the Christian church here at the present time. Thank God we are not exposed to the hazards of bombing and of war and all these other dread possibilities. Thank God, I say, we're having a period of rest and a period of peace. But the question, my friends, is this. How are we using it? To what use are we putting it all? How are we compared this morning with the church that is being persecuted? with the church in countries where there is war. How do we compare them? If we were like this, we would be making much greater efforts. There'd be much greater evidence of edification and of multiplication in this country than in these other lands. What use are we putting these things to? Now, this is, I want to show you, the teaching, the universal teaching of the Scripture everywhere. Take the Apostle, this Apostle Paul in writing, for instance, to Timothy. He puts it like this in the first epistle in the second chapter. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. It's the same thing. He says you must pray for these powers that be, kings and others, in order that we may be given a measure of peace in order that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, in order that we may proceed to live this godly life, let's pray for peace and for rest in order that we may be edified. Well, now, there it is, I say. And surely this exhortation comes to us with a new urgency at a time like this. How long is this peace to last? How long are we to go on with this period of rest and of quiet? I don't know. Nobody knows. But what I'm asking is this. Are you making full use of the respite? Are you making use of the time you've got? A day may come when war will break forth and we'll all be so busied here and there we'll have no time. And we'll say, if only we had more time to read our scriptures and to worship together. But we haven't got it. And then you'll realize that when you had it, you didn't take your opportunity. These people took the opportunity. They were given rest, and they used it. Who knows? We are not being persecuted now. Who knows? A period of persecution may come even in this country. It doesn't need much imagination to see a condition developing in which the Roman Catholic Church will again be over all and over the whole world, and we know what will happen to evangelical people at such a time. Are we ready for that? 
Are we preparing for some of these possibilities that may come to us? But above all, there is one thing that's always certain. War may not come, persecution may not come, but death will come. And you're given an opportunity now to prepare for it. It's bound to come. You've got to meet it. But you're enjoying a period of rest and of quiet now. My friend, are you using it? Are you using the time? Let's use the phrase that is here in the scriptures, redeeming the time, which means buying up the opportunity. Take it with both hands. While things are quiet, while there's a period of rest and of calm, I say don't use it just to be slack and to say it's all right. We can do that again. Never miss an opportunity. Clutch it. Buy up the opportunity. Redeem the time. The days are evil. Here were people who had spiritual understanding and insight. And thanking God for a period of rest, they took it with both hands and they used it for all they were worth. Very well. There's the first thing, but let me come to the second. Then let's concentrate on edification. Then the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. That's how they made use of the time. In order to be edified, what does that mean? Well, it means to be built up. That's the meaning of the word edification. It's a great New Testament word. Edification, being built up. Oh, here's the most important thing of all. What's it mean? Well, I can only give you some headings. Work it out for yourselves. How does a man become edified? How does a Christian become edified? How does a church become edified? Well, if, if you're going in for building, and it means that you put up a durable, a solid building, where do you start? Foundation. Start to make sure of the foundation. There's a kind of foundation laid, yes, but make sure that it's absolutely solid. Put your concrete in. Get it down deep. Make certain of your foundation. And these people undoubtedly started with them. Yes, the church always in every period of edification has started with that. I mean by this. I mean this. We mustn't rest on an experience. We mustn't rest on feelings. Thank God for them. Thank God for the experience. Thank God for every emotion, every feeling you've ever had. But don't rest on that. Make certain of the foundations, which means this, of course that you become certain of the things that you have believed. When a man believes the gospel, it's only the first step. It's just the beginning. That isn't all. He doesn't rest on that. He is very ignorant still. He needs a lot of instruction and of enlightenment. If he rests only on his experience and his feelings, something may come and will shake it. Our Lord has taught us all that in the parable of the sir and the seed. No, no, the first thing you do now is to make sure that you begin to understand the gospel that you believe. That you get into a condition, again to quote Peter, in which you can give a reason for the hope that is in you. That instead of relying only upon this initial work, you now proceed to consider it and to study it. Because it means reading your Bible. It means attending preaching of the word. It means exposition, understanding, reading books that will help you to understand. All that is the involved. You can never be edified without understanding. Very well, let me come on to that. It means this, you see, that laying the foundation, you then begin to build upon it. And this means an increase in knowledge. An increase in our knowledge of the way and of the plan of salvation. 
how little we understand this. I'm thinking, for instance, of what you have, say, in the first three chapters of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. There's nothing there but a great exposition of the plan and purpose of God in salvation. Now, a man may be truly converted and be born again and a good Christian, but he's no conception of this great plan of God. Now, that's the way to be edified, is to enter into a knowledge and an understanding of that, is to see its various parts and portions, how God has planned it all before the foundation of the world, and how it's been put into execution, and suddenly you begin to see this glorious thing, and you're amazed, you're being edified, understanding the whole plan and scheme and purpose of salvation. Then you go into the particulars. You get a clear understanding of justification by faith. There's no more comforting thing than that. There's nothing that will lead so quickly to edification as just that, to understand the implications of justification by faith only. There are good Christian people who really know nothing about it, and that's why they're so shaky, and that's why they can't stand up to arguments that are presented to them. They want to be edified. They can't help others because they lack the knowledge themselves. Now then, this is edification. Justification, sanctification, the glorification that is coming, understanding all this, seeing something of what it means, grasping it, taking it in. And then this great phrase, being in Christ. Well, I'm simply throwing out thoughts to you. But my dear friend, if you want to be a solid Christian, if you want to be edified, that's the way. Where a man begins to see that he's in Christ. That he's no longer in Adam, but he's in Christ. And the implications of that. Once a man begins to get a glimmering of understanding of Romans 5 and 6. Why, his whole outlook is changed. He's an entirely different person. He begins to feel at times that he was never saved at all before. It's this edification that's going on. There it is. There's a part of it. Adding to knowledge and to understanding. But it doesn't stop at that, of course. It means an increase in the knowledge of God's grace and God's love. Knowledge puffeth up, says Paul, but love, charity, edifieth. And we must know more and more about this, the love of God to us. The greatness of his love, his graciousness, his tenderness, his grace. Are you being edified? Are you being built up in this? Do you know God better than you did a year ago? Do you know the love of God now in a way that you never knew in the past? Can you say with John in his first epistle, we know the love that God hath to us and we confide in it? Is the love of God becoming more and more real to you? It's an essential part of edification. You're built up in this knowledge. Practical, experimental knowledge of God and of his grace and of his love. The kind of thing I was referring to last Sunday morning. When you've ceased to limit the Holy One of Israel, but are enjoying in more abundant measure his glorious love. And then, in addition to that, understanding God's ways. This is an essential part of edification. Because people are often confused. Take these early Christians... Here they were, they believed the gospel, but immediately they were persecuted with this terrible violence. And undoubtedly the devil would come to them and tempt them and say, well, there you are, that's your Christianity, you see what it's leading to. And at first they wouldn't be able to understand this. 
But as they were edified, as they were built up in the instruction and in the knowledge, as they gathered together, you remember, you read these early chapters of Acts. They used to meet every day in the various porches of the temple and in other places. In spite of opposition and persecution and hazards, they met together and they were instructed in these things. The ways of God were being expounded to them. And they began to understand why God allowed persecution and why God does many things in his handling of us. No, there's nothing more important than that we should be built up in in an understanding of the ways of God. No man will believe instinctively. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. You need to be taught that. Our instinctive reaction as children is to grumble when things go wrong. We need to be instructed. And then we'll see that God has to deal with us in many ways in order to bring his great purpose to pass, that all things work together for good to them that love God. Well, now, there is something of the mere elements of what is meant by edification. And what is the result of this edification? Here it is. It makes you strong. It makes us stable. It makes us reliable. Until we get this edification, we are children. And what happens to children? Well, the apostle tells the Ephesians. He says, you mustn't be like children carried about by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness and the slight of men. Uh, That's what happens to children. They believe a thing, then somebody comes with the opposite and they believe that and they can't answer. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. But that's only true of children. It's not true of the men who is edified. The man who is edified is no longer unstable. He's no longer changeable. He's no longer fitful. He's no longer a creature of moods. He's no longer easily discouraged or disappointed or shaken or defeated when things go against him. My dear friends, are we edified? How have you reacted to the things that have happened to you during this past year? Have you had an illness? Has death visited your family? How did you react to it? How did you respond? That's a test of edification. When a man is edified, he's able to stand the strains and the stresses. He knows. He's got this fundamental thing within him. He's right at the center. There's a foundation that cannot be shaken. And so whatever comes to meet him, though he feels it, he's ready for it. His faith isn't shaken. He doesn't begin to doubt the goodness and the love of God. He doesn't feel like quitting Christianity. No, no. He's no longer dependent upon circumstances and happenings. He's no longer fearful of what may happen next. He's edified. He's built up. He's rooted. He's grounded. He's established in the faith. He's heeded the exhortation of Paul. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's it. That's edification. Edification means, you see, that the whole edifice is being built up in a solid and in a firm manner on this foundation that can never be shaken. The foundation of God standeth sure, there it is. And we're on it. And then we are built up in understanding and in the knowledge of his love and his grace to us. And so whatever may happen, we are found to be immovable, reliable, solid Christian people and a church which is the same. So that the war may come, Though persecution may come, we shall not be afraid. We shall always be found to be steady and steadfast and reliable. Here they are. They make use of the peace to build themselves up. They said it stopped for the moment. It may come back. Are we ready for it? Let's prepare. And so they gave themselves to this business of edification. What else? Well, 
The time is going. I must just give you my headings. The, the last great heading is this. Maintain the right habitual walk. First Sunday in the new year. How are you to live this year? Listen. Walk. Walk in the right way. That means go on walking. Go on living in the right way. Make this the whole character, the whole tenor, the whole trend of your life. Then at the church's rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking. This was the trend of their conversation, of their way of living, of their whole attitude in life. Walking how? In the fear of the Lord. What is this? Well, obviously, it isn't a craven fear. This is reverential awe. This is what the Old Testament means when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you haven't any wisdom at all until you know something of the fear of the Lord. What is it? Well, it's the thing that the Apostle Paul was writing about in that second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5 and verse 11, which I read at the beginning, which puts it like this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the fear, the terror of the Lord. What's it mean? Well, it means this, that we are always walking as under his eye and in his presence. Always remember that you are his people. Always remember that he's looking down upon you. Always remember that you'll have to give an account of everything you've done in the body, whether good or bad. Yes, that's addressed to Christians. That's not to the unbeliever. That's the Christian. We all must appear before the judgment throne of Christ. Knowing, therefore, says Paul, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Every one of us will have to stand before him and look into his blessed face. And it's then you'll realize how you've wasted your opportunities and haven't availed yourselves of the time of peace and of rest. In the fear of the Lord. Oh, it's based on love, this. The fear of doing anything displeasing to him. The fear of failing him. The fear of letting him down. The fear that men will misjudge him because of what they see in us. That's what it means. Reverence and godly fear. It's a fear that is the expression of love. Listen then to the way in which the writer of the hymn puts it. Fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight. His, your wants, shall be his care. In other words, it comes to this. A man who lives in the fear of the Lord has no need to be afraid of anybody or anything else. John Bunyan has that again in a famous hymn, you remember. Hobgoblins or foul fiends, it doesn't matter. If you and I are walking in the fear of the Lord, which means that we're afraid of offending him, afraid of sinning against him, afraid of failing him, if our chiefest desire is to please him and to serve him, well then we've got nothing else to fear because he'll be round and about us. He will keep us, he will guard us, he will guide us with his eye, and nothing shall be allowed to harm us. Fear him, ye saints. And you will then have nothing else to fear. Walk in the fear of the Lord. As ever realizing that you're under his eye and that nothing matters but your relationship to him. And lastly, the comfort of the Holy Ghost. What's this? Well, it does mean consolation. The Holy Ghost is with us. He's in us as Christians. He's in the church. Very well. Let's enjoy his presence. Let's enjoy his companionship. 
He'll give you great consolation if you but let him do so. He'll bring scriptures to mind. He'll move your heart. He'll testify with you as spirit that you are a child of God. Has he ever done that to you? Consolation, the comfort of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Do you know that? Well, let him do it. These people walked in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Then his leadings, his promptings. This word comfort means that. He's a sort of paraclete. He stands by our side. He teaches us. Our Lord said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I will send another comforter. He'll guide you. He'll teach you. He'll comfort you. He'll direct you. He'll give you edification. Very well. These people walked in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. What's it mean? Well, let's put it like this. Never grieve him. Never grieve him by sin or by unworthy thoughts. Never quench him. Never allow anything in you to make you quench the Spirit when he comes and moves you. Don't resist him. Don't grieve him. Don't quench him. Don't resist him. But rather ever be open to him and his gracious influences. Seek his companionship. Yield yourself to him. Obey his promptings. Above everything I say, seek his fellowship. Take the benediction the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the companionship of the Holy Ghost. He's been sent. He's in us. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Well, he's with us. Give him an opportunity. Listen to him. Take time, my dear friend. You've got peace at the moment. You've got rest. There isn't war. There isn't persecution. Well, spend time in listening to him. Have fellowship with him. Have communion with him. Let him speak to you. Speak to him. And thus they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And the result was that being thus edified and being thus blessed of God through the Holy Spirit and the realization of the nearness of their blessed Lord and Savior, they became such people that others were convicted by merely meeting them and they began to talk to them and they were able to tell them and thus they were converted and the church was multiplied, it increased, it went on. Well, there very inadequately is the way in which I suggest to you that every one of us should face this gift of a new year. It's the gift of God. Our times are in his hands we don't own time. We don't know how much we've got. We don't know how much longer in any respect. Redeem the time. Buy up the opportunity. Make use of a period of peace and of rest to become edified. Walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And as certainly as you do so, God will use you as the means and the instrument and the channel of speaking to somebody who's outside, who's seeing in you and in me what it is to be a Christian, will begin to inquire of us and will be ready to listen to us. May God give us grace to live thus and to walk always in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.